You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The list of genres that singer-songwriter Joe Jackson has covered, pop, jazz, punk, dub, reggae, and classical, reads like a school syllabus. It's fitting, given that's where the Englishman's love for music was born. A slight, precocious kid, he came alive when playing the piano. And for good reason. He was exceptional at it. By 18, he'd earn a scholarship to London's Royal Academy of Music, and by his early 20s, he had a deal with AM Records. His first album, Look Sharp, was released in 1979. It was daring, a mix of pop and punk with addictive sardonic lyrics. By the time he moved from the UK to New York City in 1982, Jackson was being approached by fans in public. I should know, I was one of them. Gutsy, clever, and unparalleled, his boldness ushered in the new wave era of the late 1970s and set the stage for experimentalists of today like Lady Gaga. But unlike many of his successors, Joe Jackson didn't set out to make music from the start. No, I, d- I had no ambitions to be a musician. Until I was probably like 13 or 14, I suppose. Was your family musical, your parents? No, not at all. I come from a musical desert. Portsmouth, on the south coast of England, but... Yeah, a lot of sailors, not a lot of music, really. Um, and my parents were not musical at all. There's, I don't know where it comes from. It's a big mystery. I'm the total odd one out. And, um, and it began how for you? It began when I, I got the opportunity to escape from school sports by joining a violin class. 
And um, I didn't like sports because I was an asthmatic as a kid. I had terrible asthma. I was always sick. I don't really get it anymore. But um, uh, I used to get beaten up all the time. So basically, um, sports period was the excuse to beat me up. And then I had this opportunity to get out of it. You hated it so much you were willing to take up the violin. Yeah, which is, like, <laughs> which is saying something, uh, yeah. believe me. But the violin is like a sort of medieval torture instrument. And you could just imagine like a bunch of snot-nosed 11-year-old kids scraping away. Mm. And then, of course, you were walking around carrying a violin case, so you still got beaten You've up. You've been a beginner. Yeah. <laughs> but in the meantime, I'd, I sort of discovered that I was fascinated by music. So I got really interested in music and learned the music theory and all that stuff really early on. Just started to study music. It's a good thing. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I switched to piano pretty soon. Did you play guitar, bef piano no. before guitar? No, I've never played guitar. Never? Never. Never. I don't understand it. I, I think it's a really weird instrument. Right. Um, I don't understand why people think it's easy, actually. I think a keyboard is much more logical. But by the time I was about 14, my hero was Beethoven. And then I got... You, you listened to classical music at a young I, age? Yeah, I was like really, really into it. And then I got interested in jazz, and then I got interested in pop and rock music again which i hadn't really been interested in since i was a kid because when i was 10 i loved the beatles and the kinks and so on so in a way that's my real roots is british pop music right. but i went on this kind of roundabout route back into the pop world gradually and in, into writing songs so how old were you when you started writing well, in my teens, I suppose. And you wrote for what? Just for yourself? And uh, was there an eye toward you getting a group together, even as a solo act and performing? Well, um, not for a while. <laughs> I was convinced I couldn't sing. I, I still sometimes wonder, actually. But uh, I was writing songs and trying to get people to sing them, people I was playing in bands with. And it never sounded right. They never phrased it how I wanted or anything like that. So I started singing myself, and it sounded terrible, but I just stuck with it. <laughs> so out of sheer, sheer desperation. Right. You kept telling people from the keyboard, no, no, do it like this. Yeah, exactly. And they couldn't get it. Yeah. And sooner they'd say, well, sing it yourself. You know? Yeah. So Piss did, off. Yeah. Did you, have a, you had a band? Uh, I eventually had a band. What was it called? The Joe Jackson band. Okay. Yeah. It's always been that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it keeps it simple. Okay. I'm glad, actually, that it was never a band identity, you know. Um, in terms of what? Well, in terms of not... Well, I've never been in that situation of, oh, yeah, I liked so-and-so, but I didn't like him solo kind of thing, because right. I've always been solo, so... Um, <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, so my basic motivation was sheer desperation, and you get out of Portsmouth when? Um, well, my late teens, I, I, I went to the Royal Academy of Music. I got a, what I guess you'd call a scholarship and um, did three years at the Royal Academy of Music where I didn't fit in at all. I just wanted to play in rock and roll bands. But uh, I did everything I could. I mean, I played in jazz, big bands. I played piano for a theater group. I mean, I did all kinds of things. Top 40 pop bands. Playing piano in restaurants and pubs, um, anything I could do. Um, I, I think I was a great believer in the, the the old adage of whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger, yeah. even though I don't think I'd heard that yet. But uh, but a very shotgun approach to it. You do who would try anything. Any, yeah, anything. Absolutely anything. Work is work. Yeah, and then learning something. And 
and hopefully making a few pounds to live on. I never expected to have money. I mean, I figured, well, if I'm going to be a musician, forget about that. Right. I, I wasn't that worried about it, really, um, as long as I had enough to just about live on. So by the time I actually got the record deal with A&M and made my first album, I felt like I was this sort of seasoned professional, you know, who'd been around forever and done everything, and I was 23. Right. Well, how did that happen? You, you, when you got a deal with A&M, how did they find you? Um, through um, a guy called David Kirschenbaum, who was he was acting as a kind of unofficial talent scout, I think, for them. Um, and he ended up producing my first couple of albums. And, uh, well, yeah, it all happened just sort of like overnight, really. Right. After many years of slugging <laughs> right. away, playing, you know, bars horrible and... gigs and like naval bases and <laughs> weddings where fights broke out and all the rest yeah. of it. But I'm really glad I did all that stuff. Look Sharp was your first album. That was the first album. Right. And what happens then? Well, all of a sudden, I was working regularly. You know, I, I was able to uh, um, keep a band together, going to all kinds of places that I never thought I would go to, all over Europe and the States. And uh, it was great fun and a bit scary at the same time. Because you're so young. Yeah, you know, I didn't really know anything. I Did was, you have a manager? You have a, yeah, I had a manager. Somebody you relied on that helped you? Uh, yeah, yeah, he was okay. I don't think he was really all that much more prepared for it than I was, to be honest, but we just kind of blundered through. And when you became successful, was it what you hoped it would be? Uh, wow. Um, <laughs> I, it was both, like, way, way better than I ever dreamed and way worse at the same time. How so? Because... Well, I mean, I never thought that I would have that kind of audience or those kind of opportunities or make any money, you know. Sure. So it was it was amazing. I'm and, familiar with that feeling. <laughs> yeah, there you go. In my business as well. Yeah, you you don't go into something like making music or acting, I, I guess, assuming that you're going to... Success is more of a stranger than failure. Yeah, well, I think more. you have to... Well, I gradually learned over time that you have to have your own definition of success. Bingo. Right, you know, because you, you, otherwise you're always trying to chase someone else's. And mm -hmm. I mean, to me, if you can do something you love and you've got enough to live, you know, just to live on and uh, have a reasonably enjoyable life, you know, what's uh, what's wrong with that? Who were people that you admired then that all of a sudden you're one of them, you're in rooms with them, you meet them? Oh, no, well, you know, that's never really applied that much to me. Um my heroes have always been people who were mostly dead. At Beethoven, yeah. he wasn't around. <laughs> Could we get him to come to the opening of the party? No, yeah, he's gone? So. Okay. And I don't like to talk too much about you know, people you might say are my peers. Got it. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I may or may not have things in common with them. Right. But I, I, that's not what I look to for inspiration, really. Right. I look, I suppose, more to the past, yeah. Now, when you when Look Sharp comes out, is there a way that you? I mean, McCartney once told me that he said that they would go to the studio and they'd record two songs in the morning, go to the pub, have fish and chips and a pint and a cigarette, come back and to do two songs in the afternoon. They were on the clock in the early days. And they had yeah. to cut records. Yeah. And then then you know, it's a while before we're going to take a year to do Sgt. Pepper's. You know, but in the early days, right. it was work. Yeah. And what changed for you? In My terms first of album was like that. I mean, we, the, the studio was only available for, at certain times. And I actually had to go in and try to work in the morning, which was virtually impossible for me. Right. You know? right. I don't know why, but I, I, I never was a morning person, even as a kid. I, 
I couldn't, I just couldn't drag myself out of bed right. when, as a kid. And uh, one of the reasons I became a musician is is in the hope that I wouldn't have to get up early in the morning. And that's actually true, but no one believes me. But anyway, it was a bit like that in the early days. But I, I, I've always been a quick worker anyway in the studio. I mean, I don't, I don't see why people should take years to make an album. I think it's silly, to be honest. What were things that were available to you once you became successful that you didn't have before, that you were excited about? Being able to make another album, <laughs> basically, to be able to keep going and to, to do another tour. And, I mean, that's what it's all about. Um, what, what was songwriting like for you early on when you wrote the songs and Look Sharp? Yeah. How long did they take? Well, it still comes in fits and starts. I, I, I don't quite know how to describe it because sometimes I'll get on a roll and I'll write a lot and other times I don't do anything for quite a long time. And that's gotten to be more the case actually in recent years. I take longer and longer, but I'm more fussy because, you know, I think some of the early stuff is pretty lame, quite honestly. I mean, uh, some of it I still like and I think it was the best I could do at the time. But I tended to just like, if, if I had an idea for a song, I'd, I'd kind of like throw it together and think, well, but that that's all right, I guess, and right. so let's move on, and it would get recorded and released. Just looking back, I don't really have any serious regrets about anything, but I think I've been too prolific and made too many records that if I'd taken a bit more time in between, you know, I might have made a couple less records, but they would have been better. So uh, that's more how I, how I work nowadays. But I think I was a bit more of a workaholic in the early days. You know, like I felt like I had to be doing something new, putting something out. But when, but when you say you would release songs early on, that you look back on them now and they might not have been something you would uh, consider now. You know, obviously that's a that hindsight thing is tricky, but uh, th that would apply to probably seventy five percent of the things I've done in my life as well. But well, you can't. Uh, I but mean, you can't. No, you can't. It's and, out there. And also, you know, uh, we're supposed to move on. We're supposed to progress and get better. As artists, otherwise, why are we doing it? That's what I think. But what's a, what's an album that when you when it came together, you thought, "I really am proud of this. This really represents." Here's one I thought for the most part we got it right. Most of them, at the time I did it, I generally felt excited about it and like I'd done the best I could. And it takes a little bit of distance to be able to say, "Well, looking back on it, this one really wasn't so good as this one." Um, but I think I'm more consistent these days. I think my last two albums have been among the best I've done partly because I took a lot of time over them and actually threw out stuff that I didn't think was good enough or I rewrote stuff that I thought was a bit too obvious or had been done before or whatever. In the earlier days you uh, had done videos like everybody to support your work and then you stopped making videos correct? Uh, for a little while I did I, I thought I mean this is remember this was what 1984 or something right. and uh the video thing, it got very big very quickly. And um, I think that I didn't really take it all that seriously. I thought, well, all right, yeah, we'll make a video. Might be a bit of fun. And then more and more, it just seemed like you couldn't even have a single without a video, for instance. And I heard stories about um, young bands not getting signed because there wasn't enough money for a video, um, whereas before, that you know, a record would have been enough, actually. Uh, things like that. And I, I started seeing more and more videos that I thought were stupid and had nothing to do with music. And I, I decided in my almighty hubris <laughs> and arrogance to uh, to not only not make videos, but to sort of pro make a protest about it. And I wrote a <laughs> piece that, uh, that was published in Billboard, I think, saying video is killing music and we shouldn't do it. And there was only one other artist that I'm aware of who made 
similar comments, and that was Bruce Springsteen, because he didn't make videos for a long time. And he said when he finished a song, he felt like he uh, he painted the Mona Lisa, and if I had if he had to make a video, it was like he had to draw a mustache on it. <laughs> and I thought that <laughs> was great. great. Yeah. That's a great line. And that's how I felt too. I thought like, well, why should I do this? It's it's silly, you know. And this did my career absolutely no good whatsoever. But do, if you had to do over again, you might have done things differently about that. I, I don't know. I mean, I think I probably. It's like you can't hold back the 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 sea, you know, the the waves. Right. Um, you know, I I still think a lot of videos are stupid and a waste of money. But uh, I eventually got talked around to it and did a couple more a bit later on. But uh, I think nineteen ninety one, I think, was the last video I made. I haven't done it since. Well, but you know, the, the only time I see videos nowadays, it's like uh, on the exercise bike at the gym. You know. <laughs> yeah. And like one video after another, and it's quite amazing. I mean, what I sort of said was happening all those years ago really has sort of triumphed, which is that the videos are now used purely to distract you from the music. Oh, exactly. You know, which a lot of the right. time is so lame. It's it, to enhance a weak song. Yeah, and that's true. And a lot of the videos now seem to be basically soft porn, like yeah. pushing us for a young guy that's, that's, a, that's, you a, that's candy to some girl. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I understand that. You know, right. I'm all right with that. But it doesn't change the fact that the songs suck. Right. It's masking something. Yeah, it's masking <laughs> something. When did you first come to the States? What was your first trip here? Um, it was actually before my first album was released, the, the American division of A&M Records wanted me to come over and just meet people and kind of schmooze and, and so on. And that was, believe it or not, in 1978, I think. I was back in 79 to do my first American tour. I met you then. You did? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to NYU. And Gary, my roommate, he was my roommate in college and beyond. Gary and I come <laughs> to, uh, we come to uh, the Binny Bond in the East Village. And there you were sitting there eating. And you, back then, and I don't want to characterize you, but this is not in any pejorative way, you were very, very kind of imposing. You know, you were sitting there eating, and you, your album was this big album, and we're in New York in the East Village, the kind of epicenter of self-conscious bullshit coolness in New York. And there you are, me and Gary walked up to you. And I said, excuse me, can I ask you a question? And you looked up, and you, and looked up at me and you went, no. And you could just tell you were like well, sick. Assuming that you haven't just taste. made this up. Right? I didn't make it then, up. Uh, I wouldn't do that to any, you. Anything it's could not have fake been news. Well, it might as well be as far as I'm concerned, because I certainly don't remember it. Of course you don't remember it. But it may well be I true. I was one of countless people who I was I may have been in you. a bad mood or who knows what was happening. You were sick of fame and it was just, it was just act I one. I think I was sick of fame from the beginning, actually. <laughs> That's my yeah. point. I mean, I, look, I love performing and connecting with people through music, right? But I'm not interested in being a celebrity <laughs> that way. So, and I think, like especially in the early days, I, I was very defensive a lot of the time because I just felt like, you know, so, so much of what was going on around me was sort of phony and and bullshit. And it, it did take some getting used to, you know, being stared at and people coming up and these sort of weird things where someone would come up and, and say, "Hey, um, my friend tells me you're someone called Joe Jackson, and I've got a bet with him. It's worth twenty bucks to me. So are you or aren't you? You know that kind of thing." <laughs> Yeah. And then people would say, why do you have a problem with, with that? They're your fans. They love you. When did you move to New York and get a home here? Um, in 1982, I had, had a sublet here for four months. And I was really in love with New York then and um, made an album called Night and Day here. Where did you record Night and Day? 
It was a studio called Blue Rock in Soho. It's long gone, actually, as are most of the studios in the city. Right. But uh, yeah, it was actually in Soho. And at that time, Soho didn't have a whole lot of shops even. The New York that I fell in love with. Uh, and I don't want to start getting into all that because I'm sure that anyone younger, if anyone who wasn't here in the 80s rolls their eyes. I'm the same way. The old New York, the old New York. So you move yeah. here in 82 and you record Night and Day. How long did it take you to record that album? It was all done within a month, I'm sure, uh, like, like most of my albums have been. Did you, did you have a sense of what you were on to when you recorded that Not album? Not at all. Actually, I, to this day, I'm surprised that that's, well, my most successful album ever because it was a bit of a departure from the earlier ones, you know, which were more like, I guess, what you would call rock and roll yeah. and had guitars in them. And uh, I'd broken up that band. I mean, it broke up because the drummer left. But anyway, I had this crazy idea to do an album with no guitars, and I, I was really interested in, um, let's say, non-rock and roll music. Like a lot of the time when I was in New York, I would be going to check out Latin music or things that were more like in the direction of soul, funk, and you know, even the early beginnings of hip-hop all interested me more than rock and roll at that time. So you like to go to clubs in Manhattan? And, yeah, and jazz clubs. I mean, I've always been a big jazz fan. So I wanted to make an album that was uh, a bit jazzy and had Latin rhythms in it. And, a lot of keyboard. And, and all keyboards, so keyboards and percussion and no guitars. And, and I so thought, what's, what's, what, what Spanish <laughs> club were you in that motivated? What Latin club were you in and what were you listening to that inspired cancer? Um, yeah, yeah, well, that was what I saw as a, something that was starting to happen then, which has happened a lot more now, which is a kind of like terrible, all-encompassing obsession with anything to do with health and the possibility of any kind of risk to one's health becoming dominant to the point of sort of like sucking all the fun out of life. Um, <clears throat> so that was about that, and it was supposed to be tongue-in-cheek, I don't know. But what made you put it to a Latin beat like that? I don't know. It's just why I just thought it would be fun. You know, I mean, song. it's funny. People say, why did you do this? Or why did you do it this way or that way? And usually it's just, well, I just thought it would be fun. That's what occurred to you. Yeah, I thought it would be worth a try. Why not? What the hell? Coming up, Joe Jackson reflects on what it was like working with Francis Ford Coppola. To hear from another musical legend as well as pianist, take a listen to my interview with Billy Joel. I know what good piano playing is, and I'm not good. My left hand is lame. <laughs> I'm a two-finger left-hand piano player. As opposed to? As opposed to somebody who knows what they're doing with their left hand. <laughs> right. I never practiced enough to use all my fingers on my left hand, so I just play octaves, bass notes. My right hand tries to compensate for my left hand being so gimpy, so I overplay on my right hand. My technique is horrible. I can't read music. I never really you got... You don't read music? I used to, but I don't anymore. I forgot how. Hear our entire conversation at heresthething.org. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. 
Stepmom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker. Retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. For a kid raised in what he calls a musical desert, Joe Jackson is unbelievably prolific. The English singer-songwriter released his 19th studio album, Fast Forward, in 2015, which was recorded in four different cities across America. Currently touring nationwide, he considers his newest work to be some of his best. Still, he looks back fondly on the albums that propelled him to fame, look sharp and night and day, and the creative freedom that got him there. I think I just allowed myself to. I allowed myself to stretch it a bit more and be a bit more sophisticated because the, the first couple of albums, it was very much the thing of the time was to strip everything down and to the absolute basic raw essentials, you know, and I, I think I've gotten a bit tired of that. There's only so far you can go with that, basically. So um, I just allowed myself to 
stretch out a bit and use more chords and so on because I knew them all already anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't like I just discovered F minor seventh or something. But it was just I just thought, well, I'm just going to not think about what anyone might think of this and just do do what I want to do. And uh, there's a lesson in there somewhere because it was my most successful album. But a lot of that has to do with timing and other stuff. Such as? Being still a relatively new artist that people were interested in, um, interested in knowing what I was going to do next. Um, still signed to a record company that was very strong, really on a roll at that point, was willing to spend some money. Able to do a really big tour. I mean, we toured for a year off that album. A lot of things circumstantially uh, got me the, the kind of attention for that album that I wouldn't inevitably wasn't going to get later on. It's really no more uh, complicated than just needing to feel comfortable being in your own skin. And what happened after night and day? Did everybody approach you and say, were you a deluge with, you ought to do this now and do this now, or, or no? Um, I think people had sort of gotten a message even by then that they were <laughs> you wasting their breath. <laughs> you know? But I've also, I've always said this. Uh, I mean, it's hilarious when you hear artists say, well, yeah, you know, I, I know that album of mine wasn't a success because it was bad, but, it, you know, it was I, I was forced into it somehow. It was the influence of the record company or the producer or this or that. And I think, what? What did they do? Come in the studio and put a gun to your head? Yeah. You do what you want. For a lot of people, and I see it, and I've met people like this, and I'm not going to name names, but, you know, they're, they're just like so obsessed with hanging on to their, a certain level of of success defined in, you know, numbers and amount of airtime and print space and however you define it. Yeah. So <laughs> after that album, you, had, you moved here, you were living here. Yeah, I mean, after being on the road for a year. And Night, Night and Day has a couple uh, ballads in there. You know, Real Men is on that album. Yeah. It's just so powerful to them at a time of AIDS. You know, AIDS is roiling in this city and roiling yeah. in this country. And your music just is so honest and from the heart that um, and so romantic. I think that is one of my better albums. You know, so I don't have a problem with playing those songs right. still. Right. What's the next album you made after Night and Day? That was Body and Soul. And again, you know, I, I thought, well, okay, I did the album with keyboards and percussion, so now I'm going to do an album with a horn section. <laughs> and everyone said, oh, he made a Latin album, now he's done a jazz album. You know, it's the kind of thing that has been making me roll my eyes through my whole career, really, but there you go. When did Coppola call you? That was in the uh, late 80s, um, 88 or 89, I think. Was he the first person to ask you to get involved in a movie project? No, I did one movie score before that for... Uh, a film called uh, Mike's Murder, um, where they ended up. Th there was a, actually a soundtrack album was released, but my music was cut from the movie in the end. So that was a bit of a disaster. What was the experience like with Coppola? That was fantastic. I mean, it was really the high point in my film scoring career, <laughs> and it was all downhill after right, that. Right, 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 right. And uh, it's actually something that. Um, in more recent years, I've pretty much come to the conclusion I'm not cut out for it. I mean, I, I would do it again under the right circumstances with the right director, but I'm not cut out for Hollywood. Why? Well, the last film score I did, I actually, I, I quit fairly early on the project because they, they wanted me to make rough demos of everything I wrote and send them to them on a daily basis, pretty much. And everything I did was then sort of nitpicked to death by this kind of committee of about seven or eight people. And uh, 
no one really knew what they, they wanted. They had the wrong guy. Yeah, you know, the director <laughs> didn't really know what he wanted. The, the, their, the way they heard my ideas was completely different to what I thought. Isn't that they, weird they how were. that happens? Yeah, and, and in the end I said, look, this is just, it was driving me insane. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I mean, I just felt it was like everyone was trying to cover their asses, right. you know, and I don't know. I didn't feel there was any creative process involved whatsoever. How much of your music stayed in Coppola's movie? Um, most of it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the recording was actually in London um, because I think it was just cheaper to. But so I spent a lot of time with Francis and, and his, um, what did he call it? His ranch, I think, in Northern California. Right. And I spent much more time with him than I thought I would. And it was a much more interesting creative process because he's a very musical guy. And he had good ideas, you know what I mean? He, he kind of knew what he wanted, but he also was willing to give me some freedom as well. And uh, you just don't get that, really, um, let alone with a great director, <laughs> you know what I mean? Whatever became of the uh, of the Project Stoker that you did? Oh, right. Well, I mean, that that's uh, languishing. <laughs> it's, it's a like, play. It's a musical theater piece that yeah. I've been working on on and off for years with a, with a writer and a director, and it's... I think it's a great piece. It's it's about the life of Bram Stoker right. and how he created Dracula, where the ideas came from, and so on. What inspired you to uh, do that? Well, the the script they the, they came to me, the writer and the the director, um, and the the writer Raymond Hardy had written it as a play originally, and they thought that it could be musicalized, and we've done a lot of work on it, but we've never been able to get anyone to to put up the money to produce it or. You know, it's just, we've had so many near misses. I, I mean, I don't know if it's ever going to happen at this point. Oh, God, I hope so. That'd be great. Um, In your life, I would assume someone as gifted as you, have you been approached by other people who wanted you to produce them as well? Uh, yeah, a few. And have you done it? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not interested. Read the it's hard again. To, it's hard enough to uh, to make my own record. Really? You know, I, uh, dealing with other people's ideas and other people's egos, especially if it's a band, you know, but band politics. And it also is going to involve record company politics and all this sort of thing. And I, I no, I just, I've done all the patience for it. So no mentoring for you? No, not really. Right. No, I don't, I don't think I'm cut out for that somehow. I don't, I think, I don't think I have the patience for it, actually. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's something that will happen when I'm older I, or... I have no idea. Maybe I'm good at it and I don't know. Right. I just just never really... I only mention it in terms of passing it on, you know, some great... Yeah. Well, I just think it's all there in the whatever work I do. And, right. Uh, you lead by example. Yeah. Yeah. Graham, maybe, has been your bassist for years. Yeah, on and off, but mostly on, yeah. And now, how does that collaboration survive where others haven't? Yeah, I don't know. It just just, just worked out that way. I, I, maybe Mainly because he's an amazingly, fantastically brilliant bass player, and he's never really changed, you know? So I, I don't really need anyone else. Right. <laughs> I mean, on my Duke album, for instance, I worked with Christian McBride, who's an amazing jazz bassist. Um, Graham can't do what he does because he doesn't play acoustic bass, for one thing, you know? So, I mean, I, I have worked with other bass players here and there, but I always seem to come back to Graham. And uh, we were on the road together again the last couple of years, which is great after all this time. I mean, I think we were teenagers when we first met. Do you have to do anything now to, because you still sing very well. I listen to, on YouTube, there's these Thanks. clips of I, yours, uh, yeah, racing I, clips. I, I take pride in still because a lot of people's voices are shot by the time they get to this Sure, stage. but, but what, is there things that you have to do? Yeah, well, I haven't ruined my voice over the years. I've been very careful with my voice and... And I actually learned a lot of techniques fairly early on, actually. But you can belt. 
I so can how did, bet, you, how did you not ruin your voice and your belt? Because I don't do it all the time, and I also, I warm up my voice before I sing, and I warm down after I sing, and I have a lot of little tricks that I learned to to sing uh, without straining my voice, and um, I find that I can I can do it as long as I don't you know try to do a show every night for you know months on end um, and get some rest here and there. I think my voice sounds pretty fresh, and you I know, think, I sing much better now than I did in the early days actually. Well, let's just say as well as you sang in the early days. I well, wouldn't have, let's not get carried away. In those early days, you sounded pretty damn good, I must say. Well, I was never a natural singer like some people who just burst into song in the shower. You know, I've never been that guy. I don't sing unless, and that's another reason I think I haven't ruined my voice is because I only sing if I really have to. Like if I'm making a record or if I'm touring, that's, I don't sing any other time. Now, when you divide your time between a couple places you live, Berlin is one of the places that you live. Yeah. Why? How did, how did that, the feelings for that city develop? I think I find in Berlin something that I found in New York back in the 80s, um, which is I don't find really very much in New York now. I mean, it's, it's very free. You basically do anything you want. Um, it's relatively cheap. So therefore, you get a good mix of people. You get a lot of young, creative people. There's a buzz to it um, that is nice to be around. Um, it's very relaxed city. I think it has a very good quality of life and has great bars. And uh, it's a, a city that's very interesting um, in a lot of a lot of ways. But it's also very easy to live in, very relaxed to live in, and um, a, kind of a pleasure to be in. I always feel very free there. It's funny, David Bowie said the same thing when he lived there in the 70s when it was surrounded by a wall, you know. It's always had that. It's always been a very, very tolerant place and a sort of oasis of, of freedom. And it's a special place. I like it very much. I'm, I'm not there all the time. I still have so many connections in New York that I'm back here quite a lot. When you tour next, uh, are you going to come here? Are you going to come to New York at all or no? Um, well, we did. I mean, the last couple of years, uh, played, I think, five shows in New York. And we finished up back in July with a show at the Apollo, which was fantastic to, to play there. And I thought we were done, you know, but everyone seems to want to do it again. So I think we're going out um, again in, in June to play a whole bunch of places we didn't get to last time around, which will probably not include New York, actually, because mm -hmm. we've really done, like I said, five shows, I think. Now, you've written some, you've done some classical composing as well, correct? Well, I wouldn't, wouldn't really call it classical. I, I wrote a symphony, which was um, an instrumental piece in four movements that sort of structured like a symphony, but I didn't want it to sound like classical music, and it's not an orchestra. I mean, people have compared it to some of Frank Zappa's instrumental music, for instance, and it won a Grammy. It was a complete fluke. I mean, I'm still <laughs> astonished by this. It won the Grammy for Best Pop Instrumental Recording. So there I was with a, a Grammy for a record. Were you there when you won? Uh, no, I was actually on tour um, in the UK. I, thought, I think I was in Scotland. I would I would have given a lot of money to see your Grammy acceptance speech. I mean, I remember my, my tour manager calling me and saying, you've just won a Grammy. And I said, oh, come on. I, yeah, just, right. I literally thought he was... Fuck off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Symphony Number no. 1. Symphony Number no. 1. released by Sony Classical in 2000, I believe. Or 2001. I'm not sure now. But the great thing about it is that you're able to, to be referred to as a Grammy-winning artist. <laughs> and some people like that. You know, I, I can't remember the last... Well, actually, I do remember the last time I watched the Grammys. I, I don't know what year it was. It was quite a long time ago. And the friend I was watching with said, look, if you're just going to get so 
upset and throw things at the TV yeah, screen and curse. Why don't you just, you know, just don't watch Ignore it? it? And I thought, you know what, you're right. And yeah. I haven't watched it since. Are you a music listener? Do you have music oh. other than your own in your life? Uh, yeah, all the time. What do you like? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big jazz fan, actually. I do probably listen to more jazz than anything else. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all over the map, really. I mean, lately I've been into Colombian music and listening to a lot of African music as well. I don't listen to a lot of Anglo-American sort of pop mainstream music. You never I think most it? of it's crap, quite honestly. Right, really? Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, there are exceptions, okay. But I think, in general, it's not a great time for British or American pop music. I just don't. Do you ever throw on music from uh, the, the old days of music you listen to and play it? Like the the, the British pop music oh, you yeah, grew up sure, on? Oh, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I still actually listen, I still put on a Beatles album yeah, now me and too. again. Yeah, and dance I put around. on Live at Leeds like and listen to The Who when I'm at the gym. <laughs> yeah. No, I still love all that stuff, and uh, the kinks I love as well. And a lot of the other, you know, bands that have been forgotten that I used to love when I was ten, but uh, but yeah, I'm also um, I'm very interested in music from other other countries, and it often seems to me to be more vibrant and and more interesting. And, and I, I'm always trying to find something new, like some new artist out there that's really interesting. And it does happen now and again, you know. Um, it's not happening every week, I've got to say. But, and it's not always from the States or, or from the UK either. When you talk about jazz, and obviously, I mean, I've heard the jazz influences in a lot of your music. You ever think about exploring that more? Like, have you ever wanted to, you know, go to jazz at Lincoln Center and play with Wynton Marsalis or record an album with somebody like that and fuse your, or you feel like you don't really want to mix your thing with somebody else's thing? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I did do this album, The Duke, a couple of years ago, which was a Duke Ellington tribute album, where I got to work with some pretty cool people like Regina Carter, the violinist, and uh, well, a whole bunch of people. Actually, Iggy Pop is on there as well. Right. <laughs> Among this jazz. I heard Marianne Faithful was on one of your recent albums as uh, well. She was on Night and Day 2. Night and yeah, Day 2, yeah. Another album of mine that didn't do very well. Um, but uh, in, fact, in fact, where Marianne Faithful sing, sings the, my favorite lyric, uh, she orders the coffee and says, "There'll be a merger before it gets cold." Is that the lyric? Yeah, she's supposed <laughs> to be. She's a, a businesswoman who has a, no life really. Um, I, I, I'm quite proud of that song actually. I like that song. It's a good one, and and it was fantastic to work with Marianne. She's a real character. I loved her. Yeah. So the Duke, which was um, Duke Ellington with no horns and really radical new arrangements, and I thought that was. Um, a, a very good Joe Jackson album, actually. I mean, the only thing I didn't do on it was write the original compositions, mm -hmm. but I did the arrangements, I produced it, I sang, I played keyboards and, and so on, you know, and I got some fantastic people to to play on it. So that was coming fairly close to, to jazz, but I'm not even sure it was a jazz album, actually, even though I'm a huge Ellington fan and I'm a big jazz fan and I can play jazz piano a bit, you know, not bad. But I'm not good enough to get up there with, you know, like major jazz players and just play jazz. Plus, what's the point? You, you know, um, if I have anything distinctive to offer, it's as a writer. So I should really get on with that. In fact, I should really get back to it any day now. <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with uh, <clears throat> you and the people who you work with, who, who uh, manage you mm -hmm. and so forth, of this kind of album-oriented uh, uh, revival thing they have now. Frampton did the show with us, yeah. and Frampton talked about how they go to uh, the Beacon and they reenact. They play Frampton Comes Alive. Yeah. 
I know, note for I note. People seem to. I just saw Steely Dan do that recently. They did the whole of Countdown to Ecstasy. Yeah, which was great in a way, but then again, would you do that with uh, Night and Day Live? Um, I don't. I don't think so. I, mean, no. I don't really want to. You don't to be want honest. To. At least if even I though did, you'd I sell the beacon ten well. nights in a row. Well, I don't. I don't know if I would or not. You know, I guarantee you, you would. But, I guarantee you, you would. Mm. To live in New York in the 1980s and beyond, music was changing. I can honestly say that right after your biggest albums broke was when music, my music consumption changed radically in 85, 86. And I literally turned off popular radio and never turned it on again, ever. That's one of the reasons why I think it's, you know, when, when I say I don't think it's a particularly great time now, I don't think it's just because I got older, actually. Right. I mean, it might be in some way, but... But, you know, I, I was just completely fed up with pop music altogether. I wasn't interested. And then it started to get more interesting again in the 90s. With, 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 how so? Why? I think there was a lot of really cool stuff coming out of the UK, especially at that time. And um, Can you name one act that was a big trigger for you? Uh, the Prodigy. Huh. Um, I liked a lot of the electronic stuff, Chemical Brothers, that kind of thing. And, and I liked the so-called Britpop bands as well. I like Oasis. I like Pulp and Blur. Um, uh, Talvin Singh, I thought, was amazing. I liked a lot of drum and bass. I'm writing down furiously everything you're saying. No, but like, I thought that was I've got quite Joe Jackson time. in my eye line for the next few minutes. I'm furiously scribbling down all your recommendations. <laughs> uh, yeah, well. But I'm a believer that in the, w w the way we live now because of the internet is that everything is new now. People are starving for that music. They're starving for that music right now. They're dying for it. I, I have no idea what to say to that. Right. <laughs> I can't be objective. You're going to go home and go back to bed. You just can't no, be No, no. I mean, I don't know. It's flattering, you know. But uh, I think my last album is pretty damn good, too. Yeah. I, you know, so that's what I wanted to play a lot. Well, then you do another 30 minutes of no, that I mean, at the end. Or you do whatever the hell you want to do. Well, but I'm yeah. just saying, I, mean, I'm, I was going to say, if I ever did do that, I would certainly play a lot of new stuff as well. I mean, yeah. not to get too much into it but i'm a huge steely dan fan so i mean that show where they did the whole album and they also did a lot of other stuff but sure. they didn't do anything that I, I figured this out afterwards it didn't really occur to me afterwards but nothing they did was produced any later than 1981 and i thought that was kind of amazing and i i don't think i would be able to allow myself to do that but, 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 but the thing is that in 1985 I turned off popular radio and I turned on classical radio. Yeah. And something happened. That music teaches me that, that other music lives in the same way as well. You're the same as Mozart. Mm. You're the same as Brahms. You're the same as Britain. We have to lay that, we have to keep playing it again and again and again. And, and every time you hear it, if it's good music, you hear something different. Yeah, I, for that much I go along with. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the way, ways I know that something's good. It makes me want to listen to it again.
This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.